African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Well, thank you for joining us right here on uh, African Dialogue. This is Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Moshatama. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Well, today on the program, we're going to look at what's happening at the continent's largest health exhibition. It's called Africa Health. It's currently underway in Johannesburg, South Africa. But before we get into that, let's get our news update on Ellen Zinzi is standing by. Hello, catch your headlines. Members of a coalition of separatist groups attacked a town in central Mali yesterday, killing at least 11 people. Two United Nations peacekeepers from Tanzania have been killed in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, and Nepal has asked all foreign rescue workers to leave as hopes of finding survivors from last month's earthquake fade. Two United Nations peacekeepers from Tanzania have been killed in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Their patrol car was ambushed in an area where government forces are fighting Ugandan rebels. Spokesperson for the mission says the ambush took place yesterday with a couple of other peacekeepers also injured. Members of a coalition of separatist groups attacked a town in central Mali yesterday, killing 11 people and moving violence further south after a ceasefire was broken last week. Musa Ag Atahe of the Coordination of Azawad Movement says that they attacked the town of Teneku in the central Mopti region. He says that the violence is a reaction to the attack against the town of Menaka last week by groups allied with the government which broke a ceasefire agreement. The violence threatens a a peace accord meant to be signed on May 15th between various armed groups, separatists and the government. The United Nations has noted the ruling of Burundi's constitutional court validating President Pierre Nkurunziza's controversial bid to seek a third term. The Burundi constitution and the Arusha peace accord that helped end the country's civil war stipulates a two-term limit for the president. The UN also raised concerns about reports that a senior judge in the constitutional court has fled the country after refusing to sign the judgment legitimizing the president's candidature. Sherwin Bryce Peace has more. Violence in the country has left at least 13 people dead, many of them shot by the police, while the nation's second most senior judge has fled the country after refusing to endorse the judgment, as addressed by UN spokesperson Stefan Dujeric. 
President Nkurunziza, a former rebel leader from the Hutu majority, has been in power since 2005 and has come under pressure from some international quarters, including the United States, to step aside. The UN is assisting the country's interior ministry in facilitating dialogue between parties in an attempt to defuse the situation and ensure a peaceful election next month. Nepal has asked all foreign rescue workers to leave as hopes of finding survivors from last month's earthquake fade. The order came as volunteers dug out bodies in 100 trekkers and villages with the death toll climbing past 7,300. Thousands of people are still missing in the country. Renaissance has more. The abrupt announcement surprised rescuers from 34 countries who were searching for people still feared to be buried alive in many of 153,000 buildings that are in complete ruins across Nepal, hit by the 7.9 magnitude earthquake on April 25th. A review yesterday of 2,500 buildings carried out by 1,000 local engineers warned a fifth is no longer habitable and that 170,000 others would need repairs. Nepal's Army Chief General Gaurav Shamsher Rana defended his government's decision, which has sparked a controversy. And finally, Liberia is poised to be declared free of the deadly Ebola virus if no new cases of Ebola are reported by next Saturday. According to the UN senior representative in the country, more than 10,000 people have died from the disease over the last year in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. Guinea and Sierra Leone each reported nine new cases in the seven days after Sunday in sharp contrast to six months ago. The UN Ebola envoy David Nabarro says it is the first time since June last year that the total weekly infections across both countries have dipped below 20. Daniel Dickinson has more. Speaking to the UN Security Council, the special representative of the Secretary General in Liberia, Karen Langren, said that if no new case of Ebola was reported by next Saturday, the West African country would be declared officially free of Ebola. A massive international response was launched by the UN and its partners to eradicate the deadly virus across West Africa. It now appears that Liberia will be the first of the three worst affected countries to be rid of Ebola. Now recapping on your top stories, members of a coalition of separatist groups attacked a town in central Mali yesterday, killing at least 11 people. Two United Nations peacekeepers from Tanzania have been killed in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and Nepal has asked all foreign rescue workers to leave as hopes of finding survivors from last month's earthquake fade. Channel Africa News. Well, thank you for joining us right here on African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. And remember that you can get hold of us by SMS on plus 27823325905 or interact with us via Twitter at uh, African Dialogue or at African Dialogue is our handle there. And also on Facebook, we've got a Channel Africa page there. Well, today we're looking at uh, this exhibition currently underway. Key decision makers within Africa's healthcare sector have come together in South Africa's Johannesburg City to discuss possible solutions to the current healthcare problems the continent is facing. The 2015 Africa Health Exhibition and Congress, which ends this coming Thursday, has been described as a multinational platform for presenting innovative solutions, 
products and technology in healthcare. Statistics from the World Health Organization indicated in 2012 that over 60% of all deaths in Africa were due to communicable diseases, maternal and nutritional uh, causes. Lisa Stevens, Executive Director of Informa Life Sciences and Exhibitions and organizer of the 2015 Africa Health Exhibition and Congress, spoke to my colleague Elizabeth Lidija and really spoke about what the whole meeting is all about. Well, really, the Congress and the exhibition is really a place for the world of healthcare to meet. So we're talking about people doing business. We're talking about people coming here for healthcare education. So it's really a one-stop shop for the healthcare world. How important is such a conference, Lisa, for the development of Africa's healthcare sector? What does Africa stand to gain from it? I think it's hugely important, and particularly the educational element. It's a fantastic platform for people to come together to discuss best practice. And, of course, there have been significant advances within the healthcare sector of Africa, but there's still a long way to go in terms of of combating infectious diseases, in terms of management, quality, non-communicable diseases. So we really hope to offer a platform for healthcare professionals to come together to discuss strategies for the management and prevention of diseases. And so we feel it's hugely important to offer that platform. We also offer CPD accreditation for all healthcare professionals, which is something that goes towards the healthcare licensing and it's something that, that is very important for healthcare professionals to have. We often hear how the majority of African citizens die from preventable causes due to not having access to proper health care. What appears to be standing in the way of improving health care on the continent? I think there's numerous reasons. Certainly I think education and access to health care are two of the things. In terms of education for healthcare professionals, there isn't always the and uh, the right information available, particularly for those working in sort of more rural or underfunded areas. So that's going to be a huge, a hugely important area. Universal health coverage, obviously a key issue of the time, is that there's many diseases and many illnesses which are uh, preventable with the right healthcare provision. And there's obviously not universal healthcare coverage for all within Africa at the current time. And so that does lead to the large rates of morbidity and mortality that we see at the current time. Let's talk about how the program is looking this year. What will be discussed and who are some of the key speakers? Absolutely. So we have a wide range of education content on offer really to appeal to all healthcare professionals. We have 13 conferences taking place across the three days and we really are focusing on the key issues for the African continent. One of our key conferences for this year is the public health conference and focusing on those issues that I mentioned such as non-communicable diseases, infectious diseases, universal healthcare coverage. We're also focusing about quality in healthcare, how we can implement sort of great leadership and management to really sort of filter down these, these best practice strategies throughout the whole healthcare system. And I think particularly infectious diseases is one of the areas that is a huge focus on for this year from obviously HIV through to Ebola preparedness and how we can be prepared for the unexpected pandemics and epidemics that we do see striking. Your overall expectations of the conference, what would make you say that the conference was a success when it ends on Thursday? Well, we do a comprehensive analysis of our feedback that for the attendees that come to the event. And so for us, really, we're looking for a change in practice. So we want to be sure that people have come, they've learned, and they're able to actually implement this practice in their day-to-day interactions with patients. So for us, really, what we're hoping for is a very real impact upon patient outcomes within the African healthcare system.
You are listening to Channel Africa. That interview was uh, uh, featuring Lisa Stevens, who is the executive director of Informa Life Sciences Exhibition and also the organizer of the 2015 Africa Health Exhibition and Congress. And uh, Lisa was speaking there to my colleague, Elizabeth Lidija, who was looking at this particular conference. Now, it's uh, boasted as the largest healthcare exhibition that's currently taking place in Johannesburg with up to 7,000 healthcare professionals in one room. Sounds very interesting. And uh, Africa Health is also hosting up to 500 key players in the health industry internationally from healthcare suppliers, manufacturers and service health um, uh, care providers. So we're going to be speaking to Professor Sylvester Tuma, who is the Associate Professor and Head Program of the Bio and Research Ethics and Medical Law at the College of Health Sciences at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. We're still trying to make a connection with him that side at the conference itself. So uh, before we do that, let's just listen to some music and then we'll uh, speak to him just in a few minutes.
Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the uh, African Renaissance and your gateway to Africa. You're listening to African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama. And just to remind you that our frequency is 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Uh, today, we're crossing live to uh, the Africa Health Exhibition, and uh, we're speaking to Professor Sylvester Chima, who is the Associate Professor and Head of Program of the Bio and Research Ethics and Medical Law Department at the College of Hitsan at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, really to look at some of the themes that were covered there, but also to see, uh, get some knowledge about his insights. And we're supposed to have other guests there, but something happened with that PR company. I'm not quite sure what actually happened in terms of getting the other guests in that particular room and at the conference. But thank you otherwise for joining us, Professor Chima. Thank you very much. Now, Professor, let's look at uh, your expertise in terms of uh, uh, your work at the Program of Bio and Research Ethics and Medical Law at the College of Head Sciences and the University of KwaZulu-Natal. What is your involvement in terms of uh, Africa Health this year? Um, basically, we've been, I've been involved with Africa Health for the past three years, uh, where we have an annual conference. My um, particular uh, expertise is in areas of uh, medical ethics and medical law, and we all look. We always look at. I host uh, a particular segment of the conference, which is called the uh, Ethics and Medical Law Conference. And this year, we are having the fifth Human Rights Medical Law and Ethics Conference. This is the fifth edition of that particular conference. And during this session, what we are going to be looking at is some of the ethical issues and medical legal issues that impact on healthcare uh, as it affects Africa, which is reference to African issues. Uh, we're going to be looking at issues, for example, this year we're looking at Ebola virus disease and the ethical implications thereof, knowing that we had this, you know, a huge outbreak of Ebola virus disease in West Africa recently. We're going to look at issues of global healthcare resource allocation. Uh, we're going to be looking at issues of, for example, the productive health uh, and the ethical issues regarding maternal health and maternal welfare in Africa. And we're going to look at uh, areas of what we call human enhancement, in other words, how can we enhance the quality of human life in Africa generally. These are some of the things that we'll mm. be discussing at the Fit Ethics and, uh, and Medical Law Conference. Mm. Uh, very interesting views that, yeah. that you're highlighting there and some of the themes are very interesting in terms of that relationship between uh, medical law, human rights and also the implications when it looks at something like um, the ethics of the Ebola virus disease as you've just mentioned how important is this um, uh, part of uh, uh, ethics and law in health and why should it be something that we really focus on especially as an African continent? Now, I, I wrote uh, something a, a few years back, uh, a couple, actually last year, on mm-hmm. uh, Arab health, called the importance of health, medical law, and ethics in Africa, uh, or ethics and human rights in uh, African health. In other words, ethics, it's the bioethics, the way we look at it, is the application of ethical issues to all aspects of biology. Mm-hmm. You know, that includes human life, includes, you know, everything that affects the human being. Now, being that we are, you know, as we are human beings, uh, although we have our own particular problems, what we want to look at when we talk about how it impacts on healthcare in Africa is that you cannot actually have a, an effective healthcare system without it being ethical. We are looking at the ethical issues. We're looking at issues because in Africa we have prevalence of issues such as poverty. Mm. Now, poverty means that people cannot really afford healthcare, the best standard of healthcare. Now, the ethics 
applied to that is to look at how we can actually apply ethical issues. In other words, to distribute the little resources we have, for example, equitably, so that it benefits everybody. That is part of the ethics of resource allocation, for example. Now, if we were to go down to the issue of, for example, the Ebola virus disease or Ebola outbreak that occurred in West Africa this year, we find out that, that it occurred in a background of extreme poverty and infrastructural deficits. And what happened was that because these people are poor, they can't even afford the basics, so that when they are confronted mm-hmm. with you know, health care issues or, or, or um, health emergencies such as that, they are not able to rise up because this could be due to political deficiency, which is also an ethical problem. How are people actually using the wealth? Yeah, you know, it's being dissipated by corruption and other aspects of it. Uh, it also have to do with because people are poor, they cannot afford, you know, basic things like, you know, batting soap to do or, or because the government is not poor, you know, we're working in an environment where there's poor infrastructure, there's not enough mm-hmm. water to go around. And these are all these occur. Mm-hmm. Now, the ethics of it is how to look at how we can apply, you know, issues of human rights, issues of, uh, uh, you know, to try to, you know, allocate resources equitably so that it can benefit the majority of the population. And that's how ethics and human rights and law actually impact on healthcare services. Mm, um, that's very interesting because it kind of looks at also the socio-economic implications in that. But I want to also look, because it's 2015 uh, this year, Professor Chima, and uh, we're looking at the progress of the MDGs as this is the year of the deadline, looking at issues of health on the continent, especially how uh, the health industry has uh, championed the goals. Do you think that uh, the right kind of approach was dealt with in the last few years in terms of dealing with the Millennium Development Goals? Do you think as a health industry was championing uh, the goals that were submitted by the United Nations fairly, or was it really left to humanitarian organizations to deal with this problem? Well, it is a multiplicity of problem mm. uh, in, in the sense that, for example, there's something we talked about Abuja Declaration, you know, which was they came up with the MDGs around 2000, where the African governments, for example, said they will allocate about 10% of their health care to, you know, the issues of health. Majority of African governments, for example, have not been able to meet this particular level. So they have depended mostly on, you know, like what you call humanitarian or donor organizations, you know, to donate, you know, uh, to donate you know, medicines and, and, and infrastructure or other facilities that are needed to actually, actually try to achieve the Millennium Development Goals. But the reality of it is that because most of this, you know, the, the, the budgetary allocation that was supposed to help enhance or help to achieve the goals of the MDGs, we are not properly, you know, we are, we are not forthcoming. Therefore, major, most of the countries in Africa, even though there has been progress made, they have not been able and probably will not be able to meet the you know, the, the, the objectives of the, of, the, of the MDGs. Now, now so this, it has to do with um, issues of, you know, politics, you know, maybe bad governments. It has to do with, you know, paucity of resources because most, you know, most African economies are often, you talk about socioeconomic issues, yes. Most African economies are fluctuating, so they don't, they're not able to get, you know, the funds that they need. It also has to mm-hmm. do with the donor countries because also the Western uh, countries that, you know, were supposed to donate a certain percentage of their own, you know, international budgets to aid African mm-hmm. countries to achieve the MDGs, but this has also not been forthcoming. Mm-hmm. So even though there has been humanitarian aid, the level of that aid has not been enough, as well as locally, 
the amount of money available has not been able to enable the government to actually achieve the MPG. Mm. So we are going to end 2015 in the target year without most of the countries not having achieved the MPGs, mm. as Mm, very interesting points that you bring there. And I think uh, looking at what you're highlighting there, Professor, there has to be a different approach. And now we know there's a new language that's come to the forefront. Everyone is speaking about sustainable development goals. That seems to be the new approach. But it seems like uh, people are seeing at a more uh, comprehensive kind of way of looking at health, not just uh, in a humanitarian level, but also from a governmental level, also from a local level, not just through humanitarian or an aid eye, but looking at what governments can do, what the private sector can do to deal with some of these challenges. What do you think of that type of approach? Well, obviously because, you know, the approach for the past 15 years has not achieved the objectives effectively. When we talk about sustainable also, we talk about maintaining what we have achieved. You see, we don't want to go backwards. Mm. So, you know, even if you're getting only 1% of your budget being allocated to healthcare, we have to make sure that we keep on getting that 1% or 2%, you know, without degrading to the point where we get nothing at all. So that's part of the sustainability. So we have to get to pressure has to continue. Secondly, to sustain healthcare or improve, continue improving healthcare, we also, again, have to go back to the original objectives of the MDGs and then, you know, the donor countries and try to get them to actually ratchet up the amount of, you know, uh, funding that is necessary. Now, one of the things we're going to be talking about tomorrow at the ethics conference is looking at the ethics of neglected tropical diseases occurring in the background of Ebola, because if Ebola had not come up, some of these neglected tropical diseases. And you find out that some, many of these neglected tropical diseases are diseases for which the medications are actually available. Things like ascariasis, which is uh, just worms, basic mm. worm. Things like hookworm, things like cystosomiasis. The medications are available, but because the cost of the medication, you know, the medications are, are, are manufactured by, you know, by profit-making organizations, commercial entities. And because of the costs, Therefore, the little money that is available to the African communities or to poorer countries is not enough to purchase enough of these drugs to actually make an impact on the prevalence of this disease. So we have to find a way, like you say, the approach. The approach will be, for example, finding a mechanism where there will be, you know, new methods of research funding to focus on neglected tropical diseases. Right now, the main things that are being focused on are three things, malaria, TB, mm. and HIV AIDS. Mm. But it's funny enough that the same amount that's being spent on three Three of these diseases can be spent on more than 13 neglected tropical diseases to achieve, you know, you know, elimination of this, of you know, of these disorders. Now, the most important thing that what we have to take away from this is that eliminating these neglected tropical diseases, which are basically things like, as I said, hookworm, tapeworm, schistosomiasis, and things like that, will increase the productivity of the people because these things are what keep people debilitated unable to walk, away from work. So if we can actually eliminate some of these negative tropical diseases, we'll find out that people will be, the productivity in Africa will increase because people can go to the farms, they can do the basic things, that they do, you know, and therefore improve their quality of life. Mm. If they improve their quality of life, they can buy more medication mm. and so on and so on. So there has to be a different approach or a change in, in approach in order to be able to 
obtain sustainable health care mm. in Africa. I'm speaking to Professor Sylvester Chimo from the uh, University of KwaZulu-Natal. He's the associate professor and head of a program of bio and research ethics and medical law at the College of Health Sciences at the university. I'm, I'm speaking to him because uh, he will be part of the delegation leading the conversation uh, behind uh, human rights and medical law uh, in the uh, particular exhibition, which is deemed to be the largest uh, uh, conference on health uh, on the continent. And uh, the conference taking place tomorrow titled the Fifth Ethics, Human Rights and Medical Law Conference, which will look at uh, enhancing human lives, the ethics of Ebola virus disease and other neglected tropical diseases, ethics of global health resource allocation. But we're going to stay with you, Professor. And when we come back, there's been a big debate and conversation that has been taking place in South Africa about legalizing euthanasia. And uh, a lot of uh, uh, professionals in the health industry have been actually been looking at this. I want to uh, maybe speak to you after this break about those implications. What does this mean? And uh, how do we handle this particular issue and some of the trends that we've seen internationally? So stay with us, Professor. We'll come back after this break. Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on Programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on Listen and enjoy Channel Africa radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. This month we've declared We Are Africa Month and with the theme Opening the Doors of Learning and Culture from Cape to Cairo. Channel Africa strongly supports the project and will keep you abreast of events. We'd like to get to know you, our listeners, so we're asking you to tell us the country uh, you are now listening to us on the station via shortwave, internet or satellite. And what do you enjoy listening to? So you can SMS us at plus two seven eight two. 332-5905 or email us at info at channelafrica.org You can also tell us via our Facebook page it's titled Channel Africa or tweet us on the handle at Channel Africa 1. Another option is to write to us at the address P.O. Box 91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006 Republic of South Africa. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And right now you are listening to African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama. We are looking at uh, the uh, exhibition taking place in Johannesburg and we're speaking to Professor Sylvester Chuma, the Associate Professor and Head Program of Bio and Research Ethics and Medical Law at the College of Health Sciences at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. And really we're looking at uh, uh, the theme that will be taking place tomorrow, Human Rights and Medical Law. It's the Fifth Ethics, Human Rights and Medical Law Conference under the Africa Health Exhibition. Now, Looking at this uh, issue that's taking place, Professor, in South Africa, we have this issue where um, uh, yesterday the Pretoria High Court judge, Hansa Fabricius, said South Africa uh, could uh, give serious consideration to drafting a law.
law legalizing euthanasia, which is allowing someone maybe who's suffering from a particular disease or um, uh, disability to uh, allow maybe or to enable um, uh, health officials to actually allow them to die. It comes back to that simply. And uh, these comments have been made after a terminally ill Robin Stransham Ford asked the court to allow him to die with the assistance of a doctor. Now, looking at the field that you're in, I'm sure this has made people in the health industry uh, wake up and, uh, and maybe eyebrows are raised. Well, it's, it's, it's an ongoing debate. It's something that's been debated internationally and as well as uh, in South Africa uh, for quite a while. Now, the current situation in South Africa legally uh, is that, or ethically, uh, according to the HPCSA and other organizations, is that assisted suicide is not, you know, is not legal, as it, so, uh, so to speak. But what is allowed is, for example, uh, what we call in a situation where somebody is terminally, or maybe they are, you know, you know, in a persistent vegetative state, it is possible to get authorization to withdraw you know, withdraw or withhold life-sustaining care so that, you know, person can die a natural death. In other words, you're not, you know, prolonging their, you know, their, their agony. But this particular situation where we are faced now, it also, this is the second case that's coming up. The first one was the uh, former MP, I think it was Ambrosini, who, you know, died not a few months back uh, to assisted, uh, you know, I think in this particular situation he did, he, you know, he did it himself. You know, but before that, he had applied for, you know, for assistance to that, but that was denied. However, the recent, more recent case is that this individual did apply to court, and the court gave a specific approval to that particular, but it was limited to that particular situation. Now, the healthcare professional, some of the uh, healthcare professional uh, in South Africa has been challenged by this, and they had decided to take it to the constitutional court, which basically to make a final determination on whether this is something that will be allowed in South Africa. Uh, but it's important to know that this case was very specific. It is not a precedent-setting case, but there's a possibility that other people apply, and based on that, you know, the court may allow them. Now, the danger is this is what we call, the danger in allowing this kind of situation is, in ethics is what we call the slippery slope. You know, because first of all, we're going to, you know, it may be a situation where we allow people who are really in, you know, suffering, in extreme, you know, an extreme terminal situation, and then the court maybe allows them. But what happens is that as time goes on, if it becomes a common occurrence, then there's a danger that a lot more people, including those, for example, who are disappointed with their life or whose business didn't work the way or whose marriage did not work the way they wanted it, you know, to then request because they're not happy with their, their lot in life, and therefore they will request. And that's called a slippery slope. So we don't want to slip, go down the slippery slope. But it can be controlled. In certain countries, for example, in, you know, in the Netherlands and in, in certain states in the United States like Oregon, you know, assisted suicide is legal and you can, based on the determination of the, you know, of the medical uh, of the community and the law, based on, on specific laws, if you meet the criteria set by the law, then you can be allowed to, you know, a physician or another person can assist you in, you know, in, 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 you know, in, in taking your own life if, you know, you have extreme medical condition. But what needs to be done in order for it to be the thing is that there has to be specific rules. In other words, first of all, it has to go through a legislative process. 
or it, you know, go to constitutional court, and court will determine, and then it goes through a legislative process, and then the rules, that certain criteria are laid down, specific criteria that will make individuals to qualify, and then, you know, either include or exclude individuals. So we need to have those criteria in order for it to, and again, not, you know, for us not to form, fall into the things that obviously pretty slow. That is the situation. With mm, that's very interesting. And also, uh, looking at uh, some of the these ethical issues that are, are very pivotal, and sometimes you don't actually think of the morality behind being yeah. a doctor or the profession of being a, a nurse, in, in, for instance. You know, I'm looking at the issue of uh, uh, the whole idea of what you highlighted earlier on, Professor, in terms of the ethics of the Ebola virus disease and other neglected trials tropical diseases. I want to look at that for now because I think the Ebola okay. virus has been an issue that has been one that has caught Africa's attention and it still is a problem right now. As much as it's not in the media, it's still something that is, is, is of a concern. Looking at that, uh, Professor, the ethics of Ebola virus disease, what are we really talking about there? Now, the ethics of Ebola virus disease starts with basic fundamental things. Proper allocation of resources. You know, Ebola arises in a background of poverty. It's something that's always occurred in the poorer regions of the world. It started in Zaire, then went to rural Uganda, and eventually it hit West Africa. And because it hit West Africa with a lot of implications for globalization and international travel, West Africa is an open community, for example, they have the economic community of West African states, and, and you know, there's a possibility of people traveling from one, four to 16 countries, so if you have disease transmission like what happened in Nigeria, you know, it was a visitor who came from Liberia that brought the disease, actually this on, on through an airplane to Nigeria and that killed 20 people. So because of the impact of globalization, and later on when they brought in, you know, when you had, you know, humanitarian assistance, doctors coming from the United States or from other parts of Europe like Spain, they also got infected. So it became an international phenomenon. So, but the ethics of Ebola is, it's multifaceted. It's that sweet. How do we allocate resources? Going back to what we're talking about, a socio-economic impact of, you know, ethical issues and socio-economic impact of health. How do we actually, you know, do, uh, allocate global resources so that those people who are poor actually have enough for at least, if not the best standard of healthcare, but at least basic healthcare? That's the first thing. If we have that, then we are almost, you know, at least, you know, 25% of the way up. Then the next thing to do is to, we're talking about neglected tropical disease. Ebola was also has been discovered since 1976. But since that 1976, because it only affected a certain particular group of people who come to Zion and then it killed maybe 100 or 200 or 20 people and then it disappeared again into the forest, nobody cared about it. Okay? And no drugs were discovered, no reason, because it was not, it was a disease of poor people and there was no economic benefit in producing the medication or vaccine that we used to treat it. So nobody bothered about it. It only came to the fore recently because, like I said, you know, it impacted, it, it had the danger of impacted on global, you know, on the global economy, essentially. So that's why what it is. So we don't have to wait. The ethics is not having to wait, you know, for something so catastrophic to occur you know, for the international community or for the pharmaceutical community or the scientific community to actually spend the funds and the, you know, you know and, and, and the necessary infrastructure and effort to discover drugs simply because they affect poorer members of the 
of, of the community, of, of, of you know, the, the poorer people in the world. We, that's ethics. Ethics is about how do we allocate resources in such a way mm-hmm. that we actually deal with diseases, what we call the disease of poverty. Mm-hmm. Now, Ebola just happens to be one of them. The other ones are the ones I've been talking about, what we call the neglected tropical diseases, of yes. which they are 13, actually, as, you know, you know, classified by WHO with many others. So, you know, this is part of the ethical issues. How do we reorientate ethics uh, to look at healthcare, global healthcare resource allocation? How do we, for example, you know, I'll give you a statistic that might interest you. It might interest you that 90% of the research on drugs, on, 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 you know, on producing new drugs is actually spent on only 10% of the global population. Wow. It's called the 90-10 anomaly. So we spend 90% of the research looking for diseases of, you know, things to cure obesity, things to cure impotence, things, to, you know, to cure heart disease. Wow. These are diseases of, diseases of the rich people. Wow. So we spend 90% of the research resources on that because these are the people who are able to pay. Wow. And then only 10% of research resources is actually spent on the rest of the world, the majority of whom are poor. So we have a 90-10 anomaly. So we have to find a way of reversing that anomaly so that we actually spend the money, that money that's available, working on the, you know areas where we have global disease burden, mm. and which is among the poorer people. Wow. So these are some of the mm. things that we have to look at, and these are some of the areas that we have to change if we have to make any progress. Like we're talking about sustainable healthcare, in other words, providing healthcare that actually lifts people up from poverty. Because when you lift people up from poverty, they can take care of themselves, and then you know basically it will. Really As we wrap it up, Doctor, because I only have a minute and a half left with you, in terms of really, yeah. I mean, that, that statistics that you highlighted in self, that 90 to 10 figure is very yeah. alarming and it's very concerning. In terms of dealing with the ethics of uh, medicine and, and, and medical law, how do we actually reinforce um, a more focus on, hey, let's deal with the issues that we need to deal with and let's not just look at profit-making because that's where it seems to be the problem, as you highlight, but actually harness where harness projects towards where the need is because I think that's very pivotal in moving forward. How do we do that? Is that a challenge in the health industry or is, is it also a bit of a capitalistic uh, industry in itself? Well, the world is, is a capitalistic world. Mm. It's the survival of the fittest. Yes. If you look at it, they are the basic elements. You know? So those who have most, you know, are able to survive better. And then the way the world is, is erected is the people... It's the reason why drugs are not being developed for this neglect tropical disease is because most of the uh, commercial, you know, um, most of the powerful pharmaceutical companies and the best scientists and the best research is done in the countries that are richer, you know, so there has to be a reorientation in terms of funding. You know, this is one of the things I'm probably going to propose tomorrow in terms of funding mechanism. Because the reason why people don't develop drugs is because if they develop drugs for poor people, poor people cannot afford those drugs. So there's a lot of money that is spent in development of a new drug. Now, if you're developing it for, you know, neglected tropical disease, and the people you're you know, that you're developing it for, for example, whether through their government or individually, cannot afford that drug, then there is no capitalistic or there is no benefit to the commercial drug developers, you know, for the for drug companies. Okay? So there has to be a mechanism. For example, there, there could be a global fund, just like there's a global fund for malaria, TB, and, uh, you know, and HIV, AIDS, which has actually had an impact on those three diseases. There could be a global fund 
for neglected tropical diseases, which then supports researchers who would want to work in this particular area of research, especially African researchers or researchers from the poorer you know what the problems are, you know, from in the developing countries. Therefore, maybe if there's a funding for them, you know, and then there could be a mechanism for them to actually work on the drugs that, or on, on mm-hmm. diseases that actually affect the poor people. And that's one way of reorienting. Mm-hmm. The other one, again, is to make an incentive in such a way that you provide an, a certain maybe tax rebate or whatever incentive for the com- big commercial drug companies so that they know that if they develop a drug for, you know, focused on of poverty, they have a tax rebate or there is some mm. kind of benefit that accrues to that, which is not really, they don't have to go and sell the drug, but they know mm. they do have some benefit from that. So well, these are some possible mechanisms and ways which mm. can be used to actually, you know, impact on, 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 the, on the use of poverty in the future. Well, thank you for your time. We have to leave it there, Professor Schumer, but uh, I really appreciate you making time. I know we were supposed to have other colleagues, and I don't know what happened as well, but we probably follow up after the program. But what an informative uh, program that you gave us, and uh, thank you for speaking to us and giving us your time there at the Africa Health Conference. Thank you very much. Fantastic. That is Professor Sylvester Chima, the Associate Professor working at uh, the College of Head Science at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. He's looking at bio and research uh, ethics and medical laws. Let's quickly move on. It's time for us to get our economics update from Wisani Matebula. Thanks, Benjamin, and good morning. Strong economic growth has helped the Democratic Republic of Congo create around 100,000 jobs per year from 2012 to 2014. The DRC, which vies with Zambia for the title of Africa's largest copper producer, posted economic growth of 9.5% last year. The data collection process will be revised for the next survey to include a broader range of jobs. Guinea-Bissau is reviewing contracts signed by previous governments as the West African country seeks to ensure that miners have a sufficient means to kickstart its $2 billion economy. Prime Minister Domingos Simus Pereira says uh, the review is also aimed at diversifying investments in services such as maritime transport and telecoms dominated by former colonial power Portugal. He says fishing and timber contracts would also be analysed to ensure sustainability for resources. The newly formed mining and metals group South32 is open to acquisitions once it breaks from BHP Billiton. Chief Executive Officer-elect Graham Kerr says uh, BHP shareholders are expected to approve the spin-off, which includes some of the global miners' smaller assets at meetings in Perth and London today, paving the way towards a listing on May 18th. Named after the 32nd parallel south line of latitude that links its business centers in Perth and Johannesburg, South 32 will provide alumina, aluminium, coal, manganese, nickel, silver, lead and zinc from mines and smelters in Australia, Brazil, Colombia, South Africa and Mozambique. Nigeria has already used half uh, the borrowing allowance it has budgeted for and has not released any funds for capital expenditure so far this year. The borrowed money has been spent to cover overhead 
including salaries. Lawmakers in Africa's biggest economy and oil producer last week passed a $23 billion budget for 2015, 3.2% lower than last year's spending plans. It was forced to cut spending after global oil prices slumped. And while African states are well endowed with natural resources, especially those related to mines and petroleum, their populations do not sufficiently benefit from the extraction of those mineral resources. Foreign investors and multinational corporations are often the main, if not the only, beneficiaries. Coletta Wanjohi reports in Addis Ababa. A study by the World Bank conducted in 2008 outlines the situation of imbalance between major investors of the extractive industry and African states. The analysis is confirmed by data from the Economic Commission of Africa showing that the income of mining companies increased in 2010 by 32% and their net income by 156%. Let's look now at your financial indicators. The dollar, 12.42 South African rands, 9.64 Botswana Pula, and 7.35 against the Zambian Kwacha, also at 0.652. The British pound, and 0.89 against the euro. Moving now to commodities, gold, $1,196. Platinum, $1,145. A fine ounce. Brent crude oil is now at $68.43 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now let's move on to our sports. Time is standing by. Egyptian champions Al-Akhri have installed Fatou Mabrouk as their new coach to replace sacked manager Juan Carlos Garrido. Garrido was dismissed after the club's Champion League exit on penalties to Maghreb of Morocco on Saturday. Mabrouk, who was Al-Akhri's youth team manager, has previously held the position for the first time as a caretaker coach. He was interim coach late last year after Mohamed Youssef was sacked and he steered them to the league title. Mabrouk's first match as permanent boss will be against Rocky El Nasir in a league game later today. Now, Bacom, South Africa's Orlando Pirates, were drawn against S. Kalum of Guinea in the playoff of the CAF Champions League that was held yesterday at the CAF headquarters in Cairo in Egypt. The match is likely to take place in Mali because the Guineans have been playing their home matches in a neighboring country due to the Ebola virus. Pirates will host the return match at the end of the month and the aggregate winner will advance to the Confederations Cup group stages which will be made of eight teams divided into two sections of four each. Pirates caretaker coach Eric Tingler says that the West Africans team of AS Kalum are an unknown. 
you know, it's important for us to go there with the same focus that we had when we went into uh, Gabon. Try and ensure we get an away goal because that, that gives us the, the added advantage when we come home, you know. So we're going to obviously have to be at our best to ensure that we get into the group stage. Because of their high ranking, Orlando Pirates avoided the North African giants Al Ahli, Zamalek, and Esperanza of Tunisia in the draw. But Tinkler would have preferred one of them. Yeah, exactly. Would make our preparation a lot easier because to get footage on those teams is a lot easier because they're well known teams. We know them, we've experienced them in the past. You know, now we're playing against a team that's not playing in its country, it's playing in Mali. You question whether there's actually going to be video footage of those games played in Mali, so it's going to be very difficult for us to get some sort of information on them. The South African Premier Soccer League title may be wrapped up, but there is still plenty to play for as the PSL enters its final stretch this week. Fixtures tonight and Sunday afternoon will wrap up the 2014-2015 league matches. Today, log leaders Kaiser Chiefs host Vets at the FNP Stadium. Bloomfontein Celtics will entertain Free State Stars at the, F- at the Free State Stadium. And Marispec United will host Orlando Pirates at the Herikwala Stadium. And all of those matches will kick off at 7.30, which is half past 7 p.m. Central African time. Other matches tonight, Ajax Cape Town will play against Morocco Solos at the Ethron Stadium. Supersport United will play against Mamelodi Sundowns at the Lucas Moripa Stadium. Black Aces will be up against Cheaper United at the Mombela Stadium. Platinum Stars will play against Pulukwane City at the Royal Gang Stadium. University of Pretoria will play against Amazulu at the Tark Stadium. Now, finally, in tennis, it was an action-packed yesterday at the Madrid Open. Catherine Whitaker has more. Young gun Nick Kyrgios has set up a mouth-watering second-round clash with the man he calls the greatest of all time, that's Roger Federer. The Aussie dismantled the Spanish clay court specialist Daniel Jimeno Traver in his debut match at this ATP Masters 1000 event on Tuesday. His meeting with Federer will be the first ever between the old and the new guard of men's tennis, and it's one everyone here in Madrid is looking forward to. That match, along with Rafael Nadal versus America's Steve Johnson, headline Wednesday's day session, while Andy Murray versus Philip Kohlschreiber, a rerun of the Munich Open final won by Murray just two days ago is the highlight of the night session. Meanwhile, other winners on Tuesday included Grigor Dimitrov, Joe Wilfred Songa, Milos Raonic and Gael Monfils, the latter in devastating form to beat Viktor Troitschki 6-2, 6-love. That's the end of our sport and back to Benjamin Moshatama. Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us. Uh, remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Interact with us. We've got a Facebook page called Channel Africa. You can tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or at African Dialogue or SMS us your views on plus 27823325905. That's plus 27823325905. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Coming up is uh, Africa Midday with Sikona Miso to give you the latest on uh, the news on the continent. That's how we wrap it up. From me, Benjamin Mushatama, God bless until tomorrow.